If you have your Bible, though, I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers will give you a Bible, and we invite you to come and read the Bible with us. I did not grow up in a church where they taught from the Bible, so it was fascinating to me. And I've had many of you say, I learned more in one sermon simply because you weren't learning the Bible. But we like to go verse by verse because that way you're learning how to read the Bible. The Bible has 66 books, but it's really one story. It's the story of God's salvation plan unfolded in creation and the fall, the true Adam and Eve who sinned, and then man's need of salvation as God had instituted the penalty for sin was death and hell. So he gave the law to show people their sinfulness, but he kept predicting that he would send Christ who would come and make a sacrifice to pay for our sins. He would raise them from the dead, and then Christ would offer his eternal salvation to those who repent and believe. The story ends that Jesus is coming again, and he'll come to judge the living and the dead, and some will go to heaven, and some won't. And those who go to heaven, the Bible calls them people who are saved. So you'll hear us talk about the word salvation a lot. So during the time when the gospel was first spreading, the apostles as they taught the word of God, Paul warned them. He said, be careful because savage wolves will rise up in your church and they'll teach false teachings to lead people astray. So when Paul wrote to Timothy, as, as Bob introduced the book, he mentioned that he left Timothy at Ephesus because some of the leaders in the church were teaching that salvation is something that you earn by keeping God's law. And that salvation is exclusive primarily to Jewish people. And so Paul said in verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, I want you to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. He went on to say, you should further the plan of God which is by faith. But then he mentioned there are people who were teaching the law, but they didn't know what they were doing. And so... Even today, there are churches right now, they're all over America, there are pastors standing up and they're teaching the law and they're telling people, if you're a good person and you keep the Ten Commandments, God's going to let you into heaven. Do the best you can, do unto others. And so they're using the Bible, but they're teaching a false message. And so Paul told Timothy, tell them to stop it. And so what he does, beginning in verse 12 then, is Paul begins to talk about his own testimony to show that the gospel is not something that you earn. Salvation is a gift from God that is undeserved. So he says, these false teachers are using the law in the wrong way. But then he says, let me use my example as a testimony of undeserved salvation. Now, I hesitate to put these outlines up here for this reason. Many of you have OCD, and you want to write down every single word. And as soon as you saw that, you stop paying any attention to me, and you're writing, do, do, do I put a, a capital B or a small b? So I will tell you this. These outlines will be on the website, so relax. One guy took a picture of it. He's like, i got to get a picture of that outline. So they're available, but if they help you, fine. But if they distract you, more importantly, that we're following along in the word. So what I want you to see is the first thing that Paul's going to do at 12 through 17, and this is what's cool about reading through the Bible, is you don't just pick a choose a verse out of nowhere. He has just finished saying people are using the law wrongly as a means of salvation. We should thank God 
for our undeserved salvation. It's not through being good, it's by God's grace through faith. And the way that he unfolds this is he, he praises God for four things. First of all, for his enablement and call to service. So look at verse 12. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me. Now, probably here it was the initial conversion, but he continues to strengthen him. Well, why did he strengthen him? He says, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Now, when you're reading the Bible, as you begin to grow, you're going to find that the Bible has some difficult verses. And the Bible talks about twisting scripture versus rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, the reason that's a difficult verse is because that goes against everything the Bible teaches about human nature. God doesn't save people because he sees some virtue in you. He doesn't say, man, that Paul's a jerk, but, you know, he's faithful, so I'm going to save him and put him into ministry. So I did some study on this word where it says he considered me. That word also can mean he led me. And so it could be translated, he led me to be faithful, putting me into ministry. And I think that fits so much better theologically because translators are just choosing the word could be considered, it could be led or guided, but it makes so much better sense. I thank Jesus that he strengthened me, he led me, he put me into service. So Jesus gets all the glory. Now, for, for those of you who go, well, wait a minute, he didn't put me into service. I'm not like a full-time Christian worker. Well, think about that. He called you to salvation. Romans chapter 8 says, everyone he predestines, he calls. So Jesus called you to salvation if you're a Christian, and he has put you into service. You're like, well, I'm not a minister. Well, actually, we all are. Every Christian has been put into the service of the Lord. He gives us all gifts. He gives us all opportunities. He gives us all a place to belong and to use our gifts. Now, some of you may not be doing that. Some of you are going, well, I don't serve the Lord. But that's not because he hasn't put you into service. It's because you're not practicing that yet. But Paul praises God that the Lord strengthened him and enabled him, calling him to service. But secondly, in contrast to those guys who say, you keep the law to be good, Paul goes, I praise him for his merciful, undeserved salvation. So Paul's going to share his testimony. Look at verse 13. He goes, even though I was formally a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Now, a testimony is pretty simple. What were you like before you were a Christian? How did you become a Christian? And what difference did Jesus make in your life? Now, stop and ask yourself, could I tell my testimony? What were you like before you were a Christian? How did you become a Christian? And what difference has Jesus made? Now, what happens is a lot of people struggle because they see someone like Paul and they're like, wow, geez, they should make a movie about that. And then we, we feel a little embarrassed. We're like, well, I, I became a Christian when I was four years old at Grandmom's Backyard Bible Club. I didn't kill people. I didn't use drugs. 
I don't really have a testimony. Everyone has a testimony. You don't even need to know when you were saved. You don't need to see the sun come up to know that it's shining. Right, Pastor John? So the question is, do you know that you are saved? Can you look back and say, at some point in my life, I believe the gospel and I realized that Christ had mercy on me. So as Paul thought about his own past, he goes, I was a blasphemer because he was going around telling people, Jesus is not God. That's blasphemy. Secondly, he said, I was a persecutor, which, which he literally would go around beating Christians, killing Christians, and imprisoning Christians. Now imagine how, that, how Jesus felt about that. Here's Jesus the Lord wanting people to be saved, and he's going, all right, my, my gospel is going out, and that guy down there is cursing my name, killing my people, and then Paul says, and third, I was a violent aggressor. And this word means to be, it's a Greek word, hubris. He's very arrogant and insolent and the kind of person that you just don't want to be around. He says, and yet I was shown mercy. So Paul says, I praise him for his merciful, undeserved salvation. He says, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, what he means by that is Paul wasn't killing Christians because he was a, a drug-crazed lunatic. We all are, are stunned at the senseless murder of these four boys in Solbury, right? And, and we're going, I, I, I don't even know what to say. But Paul's killing of Christians was not because it was a drug deal going bad. He thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. Because in the Old Testament, it did tell Jews to stone those who had apostatized from the Jewish faith, to, to, to drive them out. So Paul says, I was acting in ignorance. But look at verse 14. This is a great way to think of salvation. The grace of our Lord was more than abundant. Now that word more than abundant literally means to overflow, to experience an extraordinary abundance to run over so when people talk about my cup runneth over so here's paul down here hating christ hating christians and yet jesus grace just overflowed like a fountain and poured down into his life and that's a cool way to think of salvation that that jesus has this unending well of grace and undeserved mercy and he looks down upon pitiful broken people some of them are rebellious arrogant some of them are sincere, but they're deceived. They're religious sinners. They're irreligious sinners. But his grace just flows. It just abundantly is poured out. And if you've become a Christian, you could say, I praise God that his grace was abundantly poured out on me. And then he says, in addition, not only was his grace abundant, with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, meaning even your faith is a gift from Christ. If you have had your eyes open and you're a believer, it's because Jesus loved you and he just overflowed. He poured a bucket of grace on you and he opened your eyes and now you believe in him and you're learning to love other people. So you and I can, just like Paul, praise him for his undeserved salvation. But he doesn't just save us to then hide us like stepchildren in the back room. He saves us 
so that we can then be an example to others of God's saving mercies. So look how Paul says this. He goes, verse 15, it's a trustworthy statement. It deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus, he came into the world to save sinners. So all this nonsense about how Jesus came to be a great moral teacher and show us the way, it's baloney. The Bible says he came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. He came to die on the cross to save sinners. And then Paul says, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet, look at verse 16. For this reason I found mercy. In order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So the point I want you to see here is that we can praise Jesus that we can be examples of undeserved salvation. Now Paul goes, I'm the foremost, right? Because there may be one of you out there today is going, I'm too far gone. I've killed someone. Murderers do come to church. I'm too, gone, too far gone. I've molested someone. I'm too far gone. I, I've done this. If, Pastor, if you knew what I was really like, I'm too far gone. And Paul goes, no. This is one of the reasons Jesus saved me, that he could demonstrate his perfect patience as an example. You're never too far gone. Jesus' grace is available to the chiefest of sinners. So if you're one of those people out there feeling unworthy, as I just talked to someone recently, they're like, I've got to really fix up my life. It's like, no, you're missing the point. You don't fix up your life. You come with all of your baggage, and you realize, hey, the Lord saves sinners. And so some of you are religious sinners. What offends you is you're like, well, I'm not like one of them. I haven't had sex and been an adulteress, and I haven't lied, and I don't steal, and I don't use drugs like my cousin. But you'll never set foot in heaven until you come to realize you're a sinner and that Christ came to save you. And if you won't humbly bow your knee to him and say, Lord Jesus, I need to be saved, you're as lost as a murderer because Christ accepts people from the guttermost to the uttermost. So we give him all the credit. But think about that. Paul says, Jesus had mercy on me so that he might demonstrate as an example for others. Your testimony, what Christ has done for you, could be just what someone else needs to hear. I remember sharing my faith with a friend, and he goes... I don't have a testimony. I was saved as a little kid. Well, does that mean you have nothing to share? Has Jesus done nothing for you since you've been saved? Has he brought you any comfort? Has he taken away your fear? Has he brought you through great pain, trials, troubles? Is there not something that you can share about the mercy of Christ in your life that you can extend to others and say, look, if he, if he had mercy on me, he can have mercy on you. So think about that. Jesus wants you up on the trophy case. And different people come to Christ through different testimony. That's why I love baptisms. One person will get up and say, you know, I raised this and that, and I was the most wicked guy in the world, and Christ saved me. And someone out there needs to hear that. And then someone else says, I grew up very religious. I thought I was a good person. And then I read the Bible, and I realized that I needed to be saved, and Jesus saved me. And someone else needs to hear that. So Someone needs to hear your story. 
Do you remember the story of the, 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 the demon-possessed guy that used to cut himself and run around unclothed and, and cry out in the cemetery? And Jesus comes to him, and Jesus heals him, forgives him, puts him in his right mind, and he falls in love with Jesus. He says, Jesus, I want to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus begins to get into a boat, and he starts to step into the boat and says, I'll go with you, Jesus. I want to tell people what you've done for me. And Jesus goes, well, yeah, except here's how we're going to do it. You're not going to come with me. He said, I want you to go home to your own family, to your own city, and tell them how the Lord had mercy on you. You could do that. I sometimes am stricken when I meet people who said, yeah, I came to know the Lord. He forgave me. He had mercy on me. I say, did you tell anyone? Oh, no. No, I didn't. Well, why wouldn't you tell them? Well, you know, I, I, um, I'm not sure how they would respond. Well, you do get it, right, that if they don't come to Christ, they're going to go to hell. Christ Jesus came to save them. Yeah, but I don't, I don't want to turn them off. I'm going, so you're just going to silently watch them perish? Go home and tell them how the Lord had mercy on you. Well, what if they think, I'm crazy? Well, they thought Jesus was crazy. But at least you've, you've, you've praised God that you could be an example of undeserved salvation. So Paul, sometimes when he would get so excited about the Lord and about his salvation, he would burst out into a doxology. He would, if he was a rapper, he would bust a rhyme right now. He's like... He's like, I don't know how to say it, but he, he goes, as the Spirit's leading him, he's thinking about Jesus saving him. Why me? I, I should be in hell. He should have smacked me down, but he had mercy on me so I could be an example. So look at verse 17. Praise Jesus. We can praise him that he's God and king of our salvation. So look at verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. There's a couple of things here. I think he's referring to Jesus here because he's been talking about Christ's mercy. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But then there's a wordplay here because each of these words in Greek begin with the same letter alpha, the same letter A. So it's to the king, Ionion, Apharto, Aorato. But in English, he's saying, I praise the king who is eternal. We're not going to go, ding dong, the king is dead. Jesus reigns forever. He says, I praise him because he's immortal king. Once he died and rose, he'll never die again. He says, I praise him that he's an invisible king. You're like, when people say to me, well, I've never seen Jesus. <laughs> and I go, you're right. But you better get right with him before you see him. Because the Bible says one day every knee will bow. And he is an invisible king. That's why he says, preach the gospel and tell them, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Because if you say, I ain't seen him, so I don't believe in him, when you see him, you'll wish that you had believed in him before that. And then he says, he's the only king. He's the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. So there we have it. Paul's trying to encourage Timothy. Timothy, you're with tough people teaching a false gospel. You need to stop them. Teach them that salvation is undeserved. Praise them for strengthening you and calling you and saving you. And praise Jesus as king of our salvation. So that's the first point. Now, the second thing he's going to do is he's going to turn to Timothy, knowing that he has a hard task, 
So the, the Roman numeral two will, will go as follows. We should take serious our salvation as we remember our calling and others falling. So Paul realizes that Timothy's in a fight, that it's not going to be easy to rebuke these false teachers, and that any one of us can fall away from God. None of us are immune to that. We hear of pastors having affairs. Pray for pastors, spiritual leaders. Nobody is above falling away from God. And so Paul says, I want to encourage you, Timothy, as you think about your salvation, take it seriously. It's a fight. And he says, and here's two things that will encourage you. Remember your own calling and remember others who have fallen. Now, what I mean by taking your salvation seriously is your Christian faith needs to be the most important thing in your life. Hands down, nothing even a close second. It boggles my mind how many people treat their, their salvation as just a hobby. Do you read your Bible? Well, not very often. Do you go to church? No, you know, if there's nothing else to do. Do you talk to the Lord? Eh, haven't talked to him in a couple months. The Bible says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Your relationship with Christ is the most important thing. And that's why we need to hear the Bible to remind us of the dangers of not taking our Christian faith seriously. Now, many of you are taking it seriously and you're struggling. And, and that's, that's okay. It doesn't mean you're a failure. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. But for those of you who are so careless, and some of you really need to examine yourself and make sure that you even are saved. It's because you said a prayer at Backyard Bible Club, but you could care less about God. He hasn't changed your life. So here's Paul's encouragement. First of all, he says, Timothy, remember your calling. Look at verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight. Now, a couple things to think about. Fight the good fight would be, you know, take your salvation seriously. But when he says, this command I entrust to you, you're going, well, what command? Well, it could be a couple things. Back in verse 3, he said to Timothy, you need to instruct men to not teach strange doctrines. So maybe he's saying, Timothy, this is going to be hard, but you need to rebuke these men who are teaching a false gospel. Or he could mean, Timothy, everything I'm going to tell you in this book, I want you to do this. Because at the end of the book, he says the same thing. He says, keep this commandment. So he's saying, Timothy, take what I'm telling you seriously. But by way of encouraging him, he says, remember the prophecies that were previously made concerning you so that you could use them to fight the good fight of faith. So here's something I want you to think about, that sometimes when we're in the midst of a struggle and we want to quit, it's helpful to look back and see some way that God affirmed his presence in our life to encourage us to go back and see an answer to prayer, to go back and see the hand of God in our lives. Now, for Timothy, Paul says, remember back to the prophecies that were made concerning you. So if you were to read the book of Acts, apparently Paul led Timothy to Christ on one of his journeys, and Timothy began to grow, and when Paul came back through his area, the other Christians spoke highly of Timothy. So, so Paul said to Timothy, I want you to join me as a, as a, as a missionary. But then they all prayed over Timothy. They laid their hands on him. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit made prophecies over him. 
Prophecies about his fruitfulness. Prophecies that he would be a man of God. Prophecies that he would make an impact for the gospel. And so Paul says, remember back, Timothy, those prophecies that were made about you so that they encourage you to stay true and keep fighting. Now, maybe for some of you, you remember back and, and God just powerfully used someone in your life to affirm you, to remind you, to encourage you. Maybe some significant event in your past where you were like, wow, God showed me that he's really leading me. Just this week, I've had two people tell me as they've worked with, with one was working with children, one was working with teens. I feel like I've found my calling. I feel like I've found what I want to do with my life. So when God gives you those affirmations and then later on when you're like, this is stupid, I want to stop. You're like, remember back to the way God worked in your life at that meeting or through that person. But then secondly, he says, another way to take your salvation seriously is to look around and remember there's others falling. Not to look at them and say, oh, those dopes or those weaklings, but to soberly go, hey, if it happened to them, that could happen to me. So here's what he tells Timothy. He says, Timothy, I want you to keep your faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So when you first come to Christ, you lay claims to the promises of the gospel and you believe and you trust him. And you, you, you ask God to help you to turn away from your sins. And he puts the Holy Spirit inside of you. And the Holy Spirit teaches you the truths of the gospel. But he then uses your conscience to guide you to say, hey, you shouldn't keep doing that. Mm, that's not a good idea. So what he tells Timothy is you need to keep faith in a good conscience. Now, notice what he says, which some have rejected. Now, that word rejected is a strong word because it has the idea of pushing away, repudiating. It's the same word that was used when Moses tried to intervene and they pushed, pushed it away. Is there something in your conscience that God has been clearly showing you? You shouldn't be doing that. That's not appropriate. And your conscience and the Holy Spirit's coming alongside and saying, this is not going to end well. Are you pushing it aside? Are you repudiating your conscience? Are you just saying, I'm not going to listen to you, conscience? And you just stubbornly move along in disobedience? This isn't just talking about non-Christians. This is Christians. What will happen if you continue to reject your conscience, Paul says, you'll suffer shipwreck in regards to your faith. And then he gives two examples. Now, that doesn't mean they lost their salvation because we're going to see Paul's trying to bring them back. But look at the consequences of persistently disobeying their conscience. He says in verse 20, here are two examples, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So, Timothy, you need to take your salvation seriously. Remember how God called you but remember, there's other people that are falling. These two guys did not keep faith in a good conscience. So, and this is, should be your prayer and, and your concern for your kids as they go away to college. You don't want them coming back on, well, Dr. So-and-so told me that the Bible's just a book of stories, and so 
I don't believe that anymore. So they're not keeping faith. Or you don't want them coming home and saying, by the way, so-and-so and I are moving in together. We don't believe in marriage. They're not keeping a good conscience. They're rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is why studying the Word of God and hearing the Word of God, I need to hear this. You need to hear this. Some of you probably this morning have been moving out on the fringes of faith and going, well, I don't know if I believe that stuff. And some of you have been rejecting a good conscience. You know what God wants you to do. You're a Christian. The Spirit's speaking to you. And you've been pushing that aside. And God's speaking to your heart. And he's saying, do you want to end up in a shipwreck? So the shipwreck for these guys is that they had to go through church discipline. And basically, I don't have a lot of time to talk about this this morning. But let me, let me kind of illustrate it like this. Before you're a Christian, the Bible says you're held in the power of Satan. Now, it doesn't mean you're a demon-possessed person, but the Bible says the whole world lies in the power of Satan. When you become a Christian, the Bible says God transfers you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Paul was told by God, go and turn men from the power of Satan to the power of God. So God does this glorious rescue. Remember Guantanamo? All unbelievers are in Satan's Guantanamo, which is everyone in there is going to hell, including Satan. When you get saved, God comes along and he rescues you out. And he brings you over here into his glorious salvation. And he places you in a local church where you are under the protection of the leadership and the elders and the prayers of the body of Christ. And it's in a safe place. And John says, the whole world lies in the power of Satan and the evil one cannot touch us. Now, how do you think the evil one feels about that? Why, that traitor? Misery loves company. Satan hates when people become a Christian. So Paul says that when he would exercise church discipline, like Fred Flintstone and Dino and Wilma, they would be put back out under the discipline of Satan. We will deliver them over to Satan. Paul has a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 5 where he said, I delivered him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Imagine Satan going, hmm, well, looky here. I'm so glad to have you back. And you're going, well, what will the devil do? Well, the Bible's not real clear. In 1 Corinthians 5, it says, for the destruction of flesh. But I can tell you this, it isn't pretty. And so that should soberly cause me to say, I don't want to get away from Christ. I don't want to fall into sin. I don't want to reject a good conscience. I don't want to fall under church discipline. I don't want to be put back out in the world and let Satan have his way with me. I want to be in the body of Christ where God and others are around me protecting me. I need that. You need that. And that's why it's important to stay connected with your fellowship and not to fall into sin. But notice that God's not up there mean and hateful. Paul says, I did this so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. It was love. It was the word taught here is to train them. Paul's not going, I want to just see Satan beat on them. He's going, I want them to come back to the Lord. God's so gracious. He rarely spanks us without patiently speaking to us. So if you feel like the Lord is speaking to you about some clear areas where you're like, wow, I'm on my way down the tubes here. Remember others who have fallen and say, Lord, 
oh God, take me back. I don't want to be a shipwreck. I don't want to be disciplined. I want to be back in the fellowship and growing in grace. And if you know people who are straying from the truth, don't just say, hey, pastor, can you go visit them? Pray for them and you call them. James chapter 5 says, if anyone strays from the truth and you turn them back, you've saved a soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. And many of you as parents, as your kids are growing older, you don't have to be like terrified, but you should be soberly praying that your children will maintain faith and a good conscience, that their conversions will be genuine, that they won't have someone easily talk them out of their Christianity, but that they will be soundly converted and kept by the power of God as he promised. Well, the last thing we're going to look about or look at is in chapter 3 now. But let's keep the flow of the letter. He's writing to a pastor with difficult people teaching a wrong message of salvation. He says, I praise God for my salvation. He strengthened me, and he'll strengthen you, Timothy. And then he says, Timothy, stay true and take your salvation seriously. Keep teaching the gospel. Remember your calling and remember others who have fallen. But the third thing he talks about, and that's going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, is he's going to talk about God's desire. Can we get that last slide up? So he's going to say, look, we should prioritize God's heart for salvation among all the nations. So I thank God for my salvation. Pay attention to your salvation and prioritize God's heart for salvation among all the nations. Now, what's interesting here is I used to think that this was just a, an instruction about how to pray. But as I was studying that this week, one of the things that stood out to me is three times in this passage, Paul says, all men, all men, all men. I'm a teacher of the nations. And so it seems that part of the false teaching that Paul was up against was an exclusivism that says God only saves certain people, Jews. Particularly in chapter 1 when he talked about how they're arguing about genealogies and wrongly using the law. And so Paul counters by saying, listen, God has a heart of salvation for the whole world. The gospel is not just for Jews. God is not exclusive. He has a great desire for men from all over the world, women, boys and girls, to be saved. So quickly, how do I prioritize God's heart for salvation? As the Spirit works in us, the first thing we do is we prioritize prayer. We pray for people's salvation. I don't know how many times I've begged you, but I'll continue to beg you. If you have not gotten on board with us as a church to pray for people to be saved, you might be like, well, God's going to save his elect. I believe that, but he saves them through prayer. Fervent, passionate, repeated, believing prayer. And it's just mind-boggling how many American Christians don't pray for lost people. And if all you say is, dear Jesus, please save lost people, please stop. Think about this world. There's seven or eight billion people. Most of them are going to hell. And God says, first of all, I urge that prayers and entreaties, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And you're like, Tom, do you know how long it would take me to pray for all men, eight billion people? Well, I don't think he wants you to pray for 
all 8 billion of them, but how many of them are you praying for? By name. You're like, well, God knows. I just say, God, save the lost. I want to challenge you to at least have a list of people that don't know the Lord that you begin to pray for regularly by name. And this is not a testimony or a bragamony, but God has put in my heart. I probably have 100 people I pray for by name, and, it's, and, it, and it can be tedious. And, and, and sometimes you feel like, God, are you hearing my prayers? But I do that because the Bible says to do that. We can't all pray for everybody, but we can all pray for somebody. And if God desires people to be saved from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, John Samara from Syria, as, as uh, Austin mentioned, we're going to be going over to Lebanon in August. He said, would you do me a favor, Tom? He said, would you four guys take three minutes every day to pray for Syria, just for Syria, that the gospel will spread in Syria? And when he said that, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's it, three minutes? But I just talked to Austin this morning. I said, how you doing with that three minutes? He goes, I'm struggling, man. I said, me too. I've done it, I think, a couple times, but I've missed a couple times. Just three minutes to stop and say, God, would you save this person? Would, would you spread the gospel to North Korea? So we prioritize God's heart as we pray, even for our government, for kings and all who are in authority. So pray that, you know, it's, our priority is not Donald Trump or whoever your political party is. It's Jesus Christ saving sinners. So I find it a little bit dumb to be plastering, and this isn't personal, I don't have anybody in mind, to be plastering Trump stuff all over your car, all over your yard, all over your Facebook. Why? Is that the issue? Is it about Donald Trump or is it about Jesus Christ? And if plastering Donald Trump stuff all over everywhere is already going to cause a majority of Americans to say, I won't even talk to you, is that the real issue? Paul says, I will become all things to all men that I might save some. And so pray for lost people. It's not about our political position. It's about Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners. Now, I'm not going to ask you to run out with a scraper. I didn't see any Donald Trump bumper stickers or whatever. Get my point here. But if, if, if most of your passion is about politics, you're off base biblically because your passion should be about the gospel. And I understand that politics affect the gospel. But do you pray for your leaders? Do you pray for lost people? So secondly, there's another way that we could prioritize God's heart. Live like those who have experienced salvation. Look what he says in, in verse 2. He says, pray, that, pray for your government so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity. So is it really about picketing and screaming and fighting on Facebook? Does that sound like a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity? Do your neighbors know you as a quiet gentle, loving, faithful person or as a, a frothing at the mouth, wild fanatic. So just being loving, godly, good neighbors and co-workers, that's powerful. As Tozer said, the reason there aren't more Christians in America is because of Christians in America. So if you want to prioritize God's heart for salvation, pray for lost people, but pray for our church 
Pray for the churches in America to be like Jesus. Because that will speak a witness to the world as we love each other, as we forgive each other, as we, as we serve the Lord together in quietness and gentleness. Two things that were done. Third, we proclaim the exclusiveness and effectiveness of Christ for salvation. Look at verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God. Two things, that you pray and that you live godly. Why? Because he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Look at verse 5. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And then Paul says, I was appointed as a preacher to the Gentiles. Two quick things that we'll close. Think about this. The Bible says there's one God and one mediator, and it's Jesus. This week I was sharing with someone who's Roman Catholic. And again, we welcome Roman Catholics here. Come and study with us. But I asked her, I said, do you pray to Mary? And she said, well, of course I pray to Mary. I said, well, why do you pray to Mary? The Bible says there's only one mediator. It's Jesus. You don't need to go to a Greek Orthodox church or pray to the saints or pray to Saint this or pray to Saint that. Or she said, well, but she has a mother's heart. And, and if you really want to get something done, you go to the mother. And, and I don't say this mean, but the Bible says there's one mediator. It's Christ. Cut out all the middlemen and women. You don't need to go to your priest to make your confessions. You go to Christ. He's the mediator. He's the exclusive one that connects us. The man, Christ Jesus, the God-man who died to save us. And secondly, he says, that's part of coming to the knowledge of the truth. And that's hard for people. They come here and they go, I disagree with what that guy said. He says, and I go, well, wait a minute. Before you disagree and get hating on me, if it's what the Bible says, do you believe the Bible's the truth? And if the Bible's the truth... Then you got to go, well, wait a minute. Then why was I told this? Or why? And this, isn't, this is lots of churches. I grew up in a church that didn't teach the truth. But, but Jesus is the exclusive way. He said, no one comes to God but through me. So we should pray for North Koreans and, and Muslims and atheists and indigenous African and, and, and people who are living in the jungle. Jesus is the only way. But he's also the effective way. He gave himself as a ransom for all. He said, it is finished. We have a glorious message to tell people. Jesus loves you and he'll forgive you right now. You don't have to go to purgatory. You don't have to, you know, go through a thousand religious steps. You come as a sinner. You repent and you give your life to Christ. And he washes away your sins. So this morning we've learned to thank God for our undeserved salvation. Let that be an example to others. We've secondly learned to be careful about our salvation. Remember your calling and others falling. And then we said, let's prioritize God's heart. I pray often that God will fill this church with lost people who are coming to Christ. Amen. Will you join me? Many of you labor with me in prayer that God will pour out a powerful work of the Spirit. He's doing it. I think we're seeing some of it. But if the grace of the Lord is, is more than abundant, Lord Jesus, save the nations. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your encouraging words. Thank you for VBS this week and the way that we were able to share the gospel with so many children. Lord, thank you for your salvation. If there's anyone here who's not saved, may they talk about it with whoever they came with. 
and find out how to be saved. And for the rest of us, Lord, we praise you for the great salvation you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Be sure to read the second half of the chapter. It's a very interesting chapter. Pastor John will be sharing next week and pray for him.